Corinthians. Uh, seems slow at times, but we're, 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 we're getting there. We're working our way through. <clears throat> we're going to look tonight at uh, Paul's description of love, right? <clears throat> and it is interesting. One of the problems, by the way, I really think that we have uh, with this whole issue of love is the fact that we don't define it very closely or well. What we do with love is we kind of we kind of have a mixture in our minds of what the world says about love and what God says about love. Now, Paul is going to describe love to us in 1 Corinthians 13. And um, we're going to hit just a small portion of what he's saying tonight. But he's going to define it. He's going to kind of define or describe what love is for us. And tonight we're going to look at the two positive aspects. He's going to show us what love is not. Then we'll look at that next week. But let's start uh, chapter 13 and verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my good to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me Nothing. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, listen, love is the preeminent thing, that we are supposed to love, that we are supposed to be a people who love, uh, that we are supposed to be a people who love, and it's more important than all the other gifts put together. Uh, this reality of love. <clears throat> and in chapter 12, he dealt with the gifts, and he says at the end of it, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way, and the more excellent way is love. And then he just, he says, uh, that it doesn't matter how I speak, if I haven't love, it doesn't count. Uh, and <clears throat> if I have the gift of prophecy, and I, I, and I understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and all faith, so that I could move mountains, and have not charity, I'm nothing. And what, he's, what he keeps saying is he keeps reiterating, this is the principal deal that you need to have to go on, uh, going on in your life. Right? Remember, the mark of a Christian is love. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That's, good, that's the mark of a Christian. But it doesn't just mean uh, within Christianity. We looked at the fact that, listen, it really spans the whole gamut, even to our enemies. We're supposed to love our enemies. Now, when you announce that, what happens is people get thrown by the idea of loving their enemies. Because they have a hard time loving their friends. How are they going to love their enemy? Now, part of the problem is just simply uh, a definition uh, problem. What do we mean when we speak of love? Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll read you what some of the world says is love. Father in heaven, would you bless us tonight? Now, would you help us, Lord, as we look to your word? Help us, Lord, to walk with you uh, in this and to be your children, to be a people, Lord, that can uh, grasp and lay hold upon the truth that you have for us and not be carried away, Lord, with the foolishness of the world. Now, Lord, would you bless uh, mightily this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me, let me just give you uh, what the world says uh, and by the way, I've got, I think, 150 of them here. I'm not going to read all. I couldn't read all of them to you, by the way. Um, <clears throat> love is the perfect union of two souls. Uh, love is when you can't live without the other person. Love is unconditional mutual acceptance. Uh, an energy so pure that it makes life want to happen. Right, now, see what it's, talking, what it's talking about here is a feeling. Now, if you go to the dictionary and define the word love, what you'll get is something like this. Uh, you'll get, it's an intense feeling of deep affection. 
And the basic problem uh, for us is that the world defines love in terms of an emotion. And we're kind of caught between the two. And the Bible defines love in terms of an action. They're two entirely different things. Now listen, it's not that deep love can't have emotion with it. It's not that, you know, some of the things that we're talking here, talking about here as far as the world is concerned about love is wrong or, or shouldn't be there. Listen, the, God puts those things there and they can be sweet and be a blessing and be, be, be wonderful. But that's not what love is. You know, I wonder how many people stood before a priest or a, or, or a pastor or a, a registry office and committed to loving one another without even knowing what they really were committing to, without even understanding what it means to love someone. You see, we need to be able to define this thing and to understand it. And 1 Corinthians 13 defines love. It's a piece of literature, apart from the fact that it's the inspired word of God, it's a piece of literature that is unequaled. People from all sorts, sizes, shapes, descriptions, backgrounds, whatever you want to call it, listen, quote from it because of the power of the pictures that it presents to us. But we've got to understand that we've got to shift from this idea of love being a feeling and come to rest on this idea of love being an action. Now, that's not to say there aren't feelings attached to love. And that's not to say that there's something wrong with the feeling part of it. That's fine. That's wonderful. That's God-given. But what you're committing to is an action. And you see, here's the problem. If somebody <clears throat> in the marriage relationship particularly comes and commits to loving somebody till death us do part, and they've committed to feeling a certain feeling, you know what? They're in trouble from the word go. Because you and I, our feelings change all the time, don't they? Our feelings change, you know, for all kinds of reasons. And you can't commit to feeling something, but you can commit to doing something. And you know what you'll find? That if you commit to doing something, you'll usually end up feeling something as well. I read a story this week, and it was fascinating to me, right? Uh, there was this woman came, and um, she was fed up with her husband, and she came to uh, the pastor, and she wanted to know uh, how she could get even with him, right? Uh, so... Uh, I'm not sure it was a pastor, but the counselor anyway told her, here's what you'll do. If you want to really get even with him, what you do is go home and pretend that you love him and do everything for him like you loved him and take care of his needs and, and cook for him and, and watch over him. And then just at the point where he's trusting you, where he feels you really love him, tell him, now I want a divorce. So she thought that was a great idea. She was bitter. She wanted to get even with the guy. So off she went and she played the game perfectly. After a while, the counselor caught up with her and he said, well, well how did it go? Uh, are you ready to get, have you told him you want a divorce yet? And she said, a divorce? You know what I realized? I realized I do actually love him. You know, what she did was she played the part and the feelings followed suit. So understand that, that when you actually do the doings of love, the feelings uh, will follow after them. Right? But love is primarily a doing. Let me give you some more of these um, <clears throat> These are, these are amusing, right? Uh, must have been a guy that wrote this one. It's a mutually beneficial symbiotic relationship. I don't know what that means, but it had to be a guy that wrote that. Uh, the sharing of two lives. <clears throat> the home you find in someone. Somebody defined it as heaven. Uh, <clears throat> when the destiny of two becomes one, a feeling of strong attachment, having a strong liking or desire for someone or something, uh, an unexplainable attractive force, do you see the problem? The problem is that the definition is all wrong. 
that what they're looking for is this magnified feeling. And when the magnified feeling is not there, they think love's gone. Listen, love begins when the magnified feeling ceases. Do you understand that that love is an action? Love is doing something. Love is giving. We all know that God loves us. How do, God, how do we know God loves us? Because he sent his son to die for us. And he knew our names. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to burst your bubble, but did God send his son to die for you because he had warm, fuzzy feelings about you? No. God sent his son to die for you because he decided to love you in spite of the fact that you were unlovable. That's why God sent his son to die for you. And love is an action that stems from a decision biblically. And we need to grapple with that and get our minds around that if we're going to do the business of loving. All right. Uh, Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Now, those are the two positive pictures of love. The, the rest of them that Paul is going to give us are negative. He's going to tell, tell us what love is not. Right? Uh, but we're going to look at the two positive ones tonight. Let's read all the way through, though. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. All right, so first off tonight, charity suffereth long. Now why did Paul start with charity, when he started defining love, why did he start with the idea of suffering? I mean, doesn't that blow all that we've read as far as the secular idea of love out of the water? And he starts with this idea that charity suffers long. It's long-suffering. Now, long-suffering is that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It is the opposite of anger and it is associated with mercy and is used of God. Right? Long-suffering uh, is not reacting every time there's a reason for you to react. It's not getting angry. Leon Morris said this. He said, first, love is long-suffering. The word Paul uses indicates having patience with people rather than with circumstances. Uh, The word is the opposite of short-tempered. It means, if we might invent a word, to be long-tempered. Short-tempered is to lose it when they annoy you. Long-suffering is to be long-tempered. You don't don't lose it quickly with people. Matthew Henry says of long-suffering, it can endure evil, injury, and provocation without being filled with resentment, indignation, or revenge. It makes the mind firm. 
gives it power over the angry passions and furnishes it with a persevering patience that shall rather wait and wish for the reformation of a brother than fly out in resentment of his conduct. It will put up with many slights and neglects from the person it loves and wait long to see the kindly effects of such patience on him. And so we, we need to look at this, this idea here because we find long-suffering in God towards us and we like it. We need it. Uh, look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses um, asked God that, that great request, show me thy glory. Now, in chapter 34, God reveals himself to him. Now, look in verse 6, what it says. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth, right? keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, uh, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation, right? But God is long-suffering. Now, aren't you glad God is long-suffering? What if God were to react to you every time you did wrong? What if God were to deal with you every time he caught you on the offbeat? We'd all be dead. God doesn't, God is long suffering. And by the way, long suffering costs the giver something. When, when, when we find that God is long suffering, it means that he's suffering long with us. You know, sin always hurts God, sin always grieves God, but, but when we talk about God as being long suffering, we're talking about God putting up with us. We're talking about God, Holding, holding back in spite of the fact that the things we're doing deserve him to react, deserve his wrath. Um, look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. That's a heavy-duty spiritual truth for us there, right? God's long-suffering stopped him from reacting to your sin. Because if God had reacted to our sin, every one of us would be gone. And we weren't just going to hell as a matter of course. We weren't just going to hell because Adam sinned. We were going to hell because every one of us deserve it. Every one of us has grieved the Holy God and deserves hell. But long-suffering stopped him from dealing with it. And then his goodness led us to repentance. Listen, you know, don't we often think we, you know, we went looking for God? We don't. God leads us to himself. God draws us to himself. He uses all kinds of things, but he draws us to himself. Yeah, we've got to respond to it, but it's God that's doing the drawing, not us. And it's his goodness that leads us to repentance. Um, Romans 9.22, let me just read some of them for, uh, for you for time's sake. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? 
that God endured with much long-suffering uh, the wicked. First Timothy 1, verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying, listen, there I was. Listen, I was as wicked as wicked could be in my delusion. I was persecuting the church. I was present when they killed Stephen. I was killing Christians. I was trying to destroy what Christ was trying to build. And you know what? And I obtained mercy because God wanted to show his long-suffering in me. Paul received mercy so God could demonstrate his long-suffering. First um, <clears throat> Peter 3, verse 20 is interesting, which sometimes were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, in, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Do you know that when Noah was building the ark, God was long-suffering? God wanted those people to be saved. God wanted those people to turn to him. God wanted those people to uh, turn right. And remember, listen, they were grieved to him. God wanted to destroy the world because he was so grieved with the imaginations of their hearts because they were continually wicked. But he was long-suffering. He held back from wrath. Now, by the way, you've got to understand that the wrath of God always falls eventually. He will hold back. He will be long-suffering. But long-suffering is not eternal. Long-suffering is for a period. And when that period is over, God's going to deal with situations. Right? But God is long-suffering. Second uh, Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what's God doing today? God is long-suffering. He's holding back his wrath from being poured out on the world because he's long-suffering. He's suffering with the world. Listen, the sin and the wickedness of our modern world grieve him. He's not oblivious to it. He's, he, he's, he's, he's incensed by it, but he holds back his wrath because he wants people to be saved. He's holding back the end so that he want, because he wants people to be saved. He is long-suffering. Now, now, aren't you glad that God is long-suffering? Aren't you glad that, 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 that God doesn't strike you down every time you deserve it? Because if you did, if he did, you'd be gone. You'd be history. Right? You know, what I'd be looking at is... You know, a bunch of singed places on seats. And what you'd be looking at is a singed place behind the pulpit, wouldn't you? Because if God were not long-suffering, he would deal with sin and he would deal with it immediately. And he holds back, right? Now, God wants you to be long-suffering. That's not your nature, is it? You know, we want to receive long-suffering. But God says, I want you to love. I want you to be long-suffering. Look at um, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 5. Let's read from verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are these, 
are, are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, sedition, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, there's the word again, long-suffering. That when God is at work inside of you, it makes you long-suffering. You, you may by nature be short-tempered, but the Spirit of God working in you will make you long-tempered. Will make it that you don't react. Will make it that you don't deal with things as quickly as you could. Now, understand, long-suffering is, is for a period. Even with us, you know, it's, it's, it's not to neglect doing right. But the idea of long-suffering is, you know, we're not reacting to everything. We're, we're, we're not dealing with every situation. We need to be long-suffering towards people. Um, <clears throat> because God calls us uh, to long-suffering. Uh, Ephesians 4, 2, look at Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. This to be long-suffering, we're to forbear one another. We're not to react and deal with every situation. <clears throat> we're to be forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Right, so, so we're to be long-suffering. <clears throat> we're... We're to be long-tempered with each other. Now, let's let's, let's put some uh, some feet on this. What would it mean if you were long-tempered or long-suffering in your home? How would that look? How would that work out? How would that work out, husbands, in you dealing with your wives? You know that you were long-suffering, that you weren't reacting to every situation. Uh, what about wives? How would that how would that look in your dealing with your husband? That you weren't reacting to what he was doing, that you were being long suffering. You know, wouldn't that change things? What about in the situation with your children? That you were long suffering, not losing it, but long suffering with them. What what about you know with um, children with their parents that you were long suffering? You know, that instead of you dealing with situations, that you are actually suffering along with them. Now, understand this. This is something we want from God, and we're so glad of from God. We're so glad that God doesn't destroy us when we do wrong. But he says, listen, I want you to have it and pass it on. I want you to have this long suffering and be the same. I want you to suffer along with people. I want you to be long-tempered. I don't want you responding and reacting to people. And it's amazing to me that we can actually take it on the one hand, but be short-tempered with people on the other hand. And be exacting and demand that they get it right and demand that, they, uh, that, that, that situations are dealt with right away. We're supposed to be long-suffering. We're supposed to deal with situations in a godly way. Because, listen, that's who God is, and that's what 
he asks us to do. That's what he commands us to do. Now, Paul's writing to the Corinthians here, and the Corinthians, they don't do suffering long very well, right? You know, they couldn't even wait for each other at the, at the Lord's table. Listen, they, they, they had to rush ahead if everybody wasn't there. Uh, they, 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 they would rush ahead and do it. I mean, uh, when it came to dealing with issues and they couldn't be dealt with, they wouldn't be long, so they would, they would take each other to a court of law and deal with them. But God says, no, I want you to be long-suffering. I want you to deal with things in a different way. And, you know, if we would love as God says we should love and be long-suffering one towards another, you know what? God can work in situations. Um, <clears throat> we need to be long-suffering. Now, now, back to our text in um, 1 Corinthians. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Now, listen, it's one thing when people are irritating you and bothering you and they're really kind of you know, rubbing you the wrong way and you're suffering along with them and you're patting yourself on the back because you're saying, okay, I haven't killed them yet, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's one thing for you to do that. It's another thing for you to be kind in the midst of that. Now, let me define what being kind is for you and uh, then we'll begin... Uh, to look at it. Long-suffering or patience is the passive side of love. Kindness is the active side. Kindness is a word suggesting goodness. Uh, they are interested in true goodness, actively interested in the welfare of those about them. Obviously, these people are doers. They do not claim good intentions and then plead helplessness because of weakness or apathy. Kindness is wanting the best for the person. Kindness is wanting what's good for them. Now, listen, that's hard when somebody's bothering you. That is hard when somebody's irritating you to actually want the best thing for you. That'll take you spending time with God. That'll take you letting the Spirit of God work in your heart and work in your life. But wanting uh, the goodness of those... The, the Good Samaritan is a good example to us uh, of kindness. Look at Luke chapter 10. Verse 30. And Jesus said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was in that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now, now, why did they pass by on the other side? Because they didn't want to be contaminated. They didn't want to be in danger. You know, they were afraid for themselves. There, there, there was no kindness in these people. Um, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on them. Now, the Samaritan had no business uh, <clears throat> looking after this man. Um, that, that, that wasn't something Samaritans did. Right? The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Right, so what did this cost the Samaritan? Well, the Samaritan's looking at the guy. He's there lying by the side of the road. He sees the same thing as the other two guys do. 
you know, listen, <clears throat> he could be contaminated, he could be in danger, uh, it's going to cost him. But the Samaritan's heart is to do him good. And it's kind of an instant reaction. It's just to do him good without thinking. He's not counting the cost. He's wanting to do him good regardless of what it's going to cost him. Now, this idea of kindness is the idea that we want to do each other good. That we don't want to hurt, that we don't want to tear down, that we want to do each other good. That we want to be kind to each other. Oh, it's easy for us to get bent out of shape. And, and maybe, you know, we're long-suffering for whatever reason, but it's another step entirely to want to do good. And, and, and that's what we're called to. We're, we're called uh, to kindness. We're called to be kind. We're called to want to do good for each other. Now, if you think about it, isn't the desire to do good an intrinsic part of love? How can you love somebody without wanting their good? How can you love somebody without actively pursuing their good? You know, listen, when we talked about loving your enemy, right, we, we had our three things we were supposed to do. We were supposed to bless them. We were supposed to do them good. And we were supposed to pray for them. You see, loving key part of it is the willingness, the desire, the doing of good. Not because, you know, I, uh, I have a nice fuzzy feeling, but because that's what I purpose to do. I purpose to do, do you good. Now, by the way, just translate this one into marriage for a minute. If you end up in a marriage where you've got nothing else going on, but in this marriage, you are purposing to do the other person good. Always. You're halfway home. If you've got nothing else going on, but there's that solid purpose, you know it. Uh, you know they're purposing your good, and they know you're purposing their good. Listen, you're halfway home. Because, listen, that's key part of this deal of love that we talk about. It's purposing to do the other person good. Now, <clears throat> Whenever we're not doing the other person good, we're not being loving. Whenever we're doing something that's hurting the other person, whenever we're doing something that's not got their best at heart, we're not being loving. You see, love means always having the best interest of the other person at heart. Love means wanting their good. We're called to be kind. We're called to want other people's good. We're called, uh, you know, as a church, you know, what we're supposed to walk into is a group of people that want our good. That, that's what the Bible says, isn't it? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one for another. You know, we're called to, to want the good of one another, to look for the good of one another. You know, now catch it, because it's, it's very simple. On the one hand, I'm very powerful on the other hand. That if I'm not wanting your good, there's something wrong. I need to make it right. If we're not wanting each other's good, there's something wrong. That we're supposed to want each other's good. Now let's look at some other verses. And, and, and 
Um, Luke 6.35 says, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. You know what? Don't you depend upon the fact that God's heart is good towards you? Can you imagine? Can you imagine being a pagan and, you know, having a God, in, a God who you really weren't sure at any given time whether you wanted your good or wanted your bad? You were trying to keep him happy, trying to keep him appeased so that he wouldn't get bent out of shape with you and come down and destroy your crops and do damage. Listen, we depend upon it. Listen, God loves me. He wants my good. God wants my good. We depend. And he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. God's always kind. Romans 2 verse 4. Or despised that the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You know, you're saved today because God had your good at heart, didn't he? Listen, God was thinking good of you long before you ever thought about him. God was wanting good for you long before you ever thought about him at all. God was drawing to yourself. Ephesians 2 verse 7 uh, says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness uh, towards us through Christ Jesus. You know what's going to demonstrate the grace of God, God's, you know, enabling in our lives, his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, his goodness. The fact that although we deserved wrath, he decided we're going to get goodness instead. He thought good of us. He wanted to give us good. Um, <clears throat> look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Verse 31 says that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, all those things are kind of the opposites to what we find in verse 32. You can't be bitter about somebody and kind to them at the same time. Do you know that? You can't, in order for you to be kind, you, you, you have to put away bitterness. In order for you to be kind to somebody, you've got to put that to one side. You've got to put the wrath aside. You've got to put evil speaking aside. You've got to put those things aside if you're going to be kind. And he says, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, folks, this is basic to Christianity. We're supposed to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. Putting it away, dealing with it. And if we're, if we're, if we're not, we're in trouble because that's a command. Be ye kind. You're supposed to want the good of others. You say, who am I supposed to want the good of? Well, definitely the church. Obviously, your family, your friends. Everybody, you're supposed to want the good of them. Listen, that's not possible, is it? That guy that's hurt you out there, that did you wrong, God says you're supposed to be kind to him. 
Now, kind doesn't mean making yourself vulnerable to him. Kind means what you're going to do is you're going to want his good and actively seek his good. Let me, let me throw out something to you. If there's somebody in the world that you can't pray for God's blessing on, you're in trouble. If there's somebody that you can't pray honestly with an open heart, come before your Father in heaven and pray, Lord, bless them. You're in trouble. Because you're supposed to be kind. You're supposed to want their good. You're supposed to want God's blessing in their lives. Listen, this is tall. This is a tall order. This is a big deal that God is asking of us. First uh, uh, Peter 3, verse 8 says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. The idea there is be kind one to another. We're commanded to be kind. Now, look... <clears throat> We start looking at love, and we get two basic, two basic, basic issues. We're supposed to be long-suffering, and we're supposed to be kind. Now, when you're asking yourself what love looks like, it's always going to be long-suffering, and it's always going to be kind. Always, because God is long-suffering and God is kind, and your love is always going to be long-suffering, and it's always going to be kind. It's always going to want the best for somebody. Listen, you know, it's not going to hold back when something needs to be dealt with, but it's going to be long-suffering and it's going to be kind. Always. Now, I wonder tonight, is that true of you? Or is the Spirit of God maybe poking a hole and saying, hey, look at this here. Deal with this. See this issue here? See where you're being short-tempered instead of long-tempered? See where you really don't have their good at heart? See, in your life where, listen, you're not loving the way you think you are. And listen, now God can deal with that. This is not a you thing. You're not able to do this. This is a God thing. God's able to take and God's able to help you. But in order for God to help us, you know, we have to realize we're in the wrong. We have to humble ourselves and say we're in the wrong. God can't help you unless you humble yourself and you say you're in the wrong. But listen, if you do that, God can step in and God can help you. And it doesn't matter who it is, God can help you to love them. Because the command is to love. And when you start letting yourself fulfill the command by the power of God, you know what happens? You actually begin to be like your father. You're now carrying a family resemblance. You begin to be like your father because he's long-suffering and he is kind. As we close tonight, and the Spirit of God is dealing in our hearts and lives, has he got something for you tonight? Is there something you need to respond to with him? Is there something he's touched in your life tonight and you would say, Pastor, I need to get this right. Lord, help me. I need to get this right. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. God is dealing in hearts tonight, and God is working in hearts. Is there somebody, first of all, that you look upon, and listen, you're not long-suffering towards them, and you're not kind. It might be somebody that's close to you. It might be somebody that's far away from you, but the reality in your heart is you're not long-suffering, and you're not kind towards them. But the Spirit of God is dealing with you tonight. Now, let me encourage you. Let me plead with you. Don't say no to them. Don't walk away and say no. Say yes to God.
Say yes, listen, that's true. I want to change, though. I want to be like you tell me to be. I want to be the kind of person that you tell me to be. God is dealing with you tonight, and you know that he's got a message for you, that he's saying, listen, you're not long-suffering, you're not kind, there's something wrong here, and it needs to change. And you would say, Lord, I'm willing. Now, you may not be able to change it, because we're not loving by nature. But you're willing to let God take and work in your heart and make you loving. With every head bowed and every eye closed, God is dealing with you. Would you lift your hand? Amen. Amen. See those hands. Amen. Are there others? God is dealing with you. You know, the Bible says the bond of perfectness is love. Maturity as a Christian is love. And we don't mature just because we want to grow to maturity. We mature because we let the Spirit of God work in our hearts and lives and deal with us and change us. We mature by the decisions that we make. And I realize, you know, you can make a decision in church and you can walk away and do nothing about it and that's not going to help you. But when you make a decision and you follow through on it, that's going to help you grow. That's going to help you mature. And when you fail to make the decision, you can't move forward. God is speaking to you tonight. Would you just lift your hand? God is dealing with you tonight. Just lift your hand. Amen. Amen. Other others. God is dealing with you tonight. Let me ask you one other question before we close. Your heads are bowed and eyes are closed. God is dealing with you about salvation. We're talking about love, and in all honesty, uh, you look at love and it's not there. And that's something that only God can put in your heart. But you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Savior. You don't know God. But you'd like someone to take the Bible and show you. Would you lift your hand so I can pray for you? Father in heaven, <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you for working in hearts and lives and blessed spirit of the living God. Uh, would you do a deep work, Lord? Would you root out anything in us, Lord, that is not what you'd have it to be? And would you change it and would you replace it with your love? Now, Father, we're looking to you. We're depending upon you. Would you do it, Lord, for we can't. In Jesus' precious name, amen.